Life is full of things that we take for granted, no doubt. Uh, you know, I know all of us have, have many of those, uh, a long, long list of those, perhaps even the clothes on your back, uh, whatever you had for breakfast this morning, uh, we take. Uh, the fact that you woke up maybe with a roof over your head, we take a, a whole host of things uh, for granted, just ordinary things in life for granted. Let me, let me give you another one, traffic lights. Now, you think of those as being nothing but an impediment, nothing but a bother, right? But think about where we would be without them, without those red and yellow and green lights. If you've ever driven in other parts of the world, um, you may have experienced, if not at least seen or, or, or heard of, um, the chaos that can be created when you don't have orderly movement out there on the roadways, whether in a, in a metropolitan area or just out in the countryside or, you know, the, the, the craziness of trying to engage and, and uh, work through just the simple thing of moving through an intersection without direction at the intersection. It's like, think with me, it's like the outer edges of the Walmart parking lot, right? It's the wild, wild west. You don't know who's going left, who's going right, who's yielding, who's going forward. It's, it's, it's no rules. It's, it's no rules, all, all, all chaos, all craziness, no rules, and they're in no movement. Uh, that's a picture. That's a picture of what, dare I say, what total freedom brings. Total freedom brings anarchy, chaos, total tyranny. That's what total freedom brings. Total freedom brings total tyranny. Okay, moving then from traffic lights to our text this morning, the book of Judges. That's exactly what we see. Total freedom leading to total tyranny. Uh, and the need for the one that we have been singing of here this, this morning. So uh, we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 17 and 18. It'll be on the screen. So we're going to start in verse 1, chapter 17, read all the way through chapter 18, verse, verse 31. If you're trying to find that, this is after uh, the book of Joshua, before the book of Ruth. Uh, it, it sits, it, this is a, a transition period within the history of Israel between the settlement of the land and the establishment of the monarchy between the time of Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon. And as we've said, as Will and I have been saying, as we've been trading off in these messages over the last several weeks, it is a messy, messy time. But we have a lot to learn from this. Judges chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Hear now God's word. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. And when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine 
And he made an ephod and a household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he sojourned, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshdael, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, and they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtael, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshdael and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, the place is called Mehanah Dan to this day. And behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now, therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, and the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. 
And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest of, to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me? What is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. And the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people, quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword. And burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon. And they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Baith Harab. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born in Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Well, we need to pray. So let's ask for the Lord's blessing on listening to his Spirit's instruction to us. Jesus, we need your help now that we would listen, that we would hear your word uh, speaking down deeply into our hearts. Jesus, would you please now, by your Holy Spirit, do that good work, that excavating work. Um, whatever assumptions and presumptions we are coming with here this morning, would you help us to hold them loosely, with, to come to you with open hands, open hands of need, but open hands also of, of wanting to understand and to be teachable and transformed and changed, convicted and comforted and sent forth in your name into this world. But Lord, we need to pause, pause and be still here at this time that we would hear you. So that's what we're asking now. Amen. The Lion King, the Lion King, whether it's, you know, up on the silver screen on your Blu-ray player, your phone, or on Broadway. So whether it's the movie or the play, it's basically the story of a king's ascent, right? When you think about it from the beginning to the end, The Lion King is basically a story of a king's ascent. It starts off, of course, little Simba, uh, Rafiki, right, the baboon. You know, he, he names the little dude as king over the pride lands, right? But then you have some twists in the tale, some curves in, in the plot. And Mufasa, his father, is killed. And little, little Simba freaks out. He's, he's afraid, so he goes off into, into the wilderness. And Uncle Scar takes over. And over time, 
the land starts to wither and the creatures of the land begin to suffer and in some cases even, even perish. So what they need is the king. They need Simba. They need King Simba to come back. But for that to happen, he's got to, well, he's got to want to go back and he's got to be enthroned for him to be the king, for him to be restored to his rightful place. And until all that happens, well, nothing's going to happen. Until all that happens, what needs to happen is not going to to take place. It really, the, the story at, towards the latter part of, the, of that story is the question towards the latter part of that story is who is the king? Who is the king? Well, that's really the story here in Judges in many, many ways. Who is the sovereign ruler? Who will God's people uh, look to? You can certainly see it in, in chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Or skipping down to chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. So who's in charge? Who is Israel's ruler and defender? Who will they look to? Who will they follow? Uh, who's, who will they rely upon? Who will they submit their lives to? And as the book unfolds, as the narrative unfolds, what becomes clearer and clearer is, is this. Who is the king? The Lord is their king. That's the one to whom they need to be looking to and leaning upon, trusting and submitting to, following with all their heart and soul. The Lord is their king. Now, the implication of that is simply this. They, we, need to turn from our idols and to him. He is the king. The Lord is the king. Therein we need to turn from our idols and to him. Now, at this point, you're thinking, wait, 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 wait a minute. Idols? Where did you get that? You just like made that up. You pulled that out of nowhere. No, idolatry and the worship of false gods is in the background of everything we just read in chapters 17 and 18. It's lurking behind the scenes, behind the curtain in everything, kind of expressing itself up on the stage as well at times. So we need to consider this. We need to consider what are, what are idols? What might idols be for us today? And how, how do they work in our lives today? So if you've got the, the outlines where we're going, actually, part one is the definition, the definition of idolatry. And the second is the dynamics, how they function, how they work in our lives. And we've got to wrestle with those things that we might turn from those things and give ourselves towards our true king. So first, the definition. What are we looking at here? So this is going to be a big overview, okay, in terms of what we're talking about and how, how you see it playing out here uh, in this passage. So when you hear the word idolatry, what comes to mind? Common assumptions. This is what oftentimes comes to, to mind when we, we use that terminology. It's a primitive thing, right? Idols are just, they're just a, uh, they're of, of the past, a primitive thing of the past. It's, it's a physical object made of, of wood or stone or some precious metal, and it just serves as a channel, as a point of access, a means of a conduit, if you will, towards this God. Well, that's, you know, that's a primitive thing. It's a thing of the past. So therein, surely, we've outgrown that sort of thing. We don't have to worry about that sort of thing. That's not us. We would never do that. Are you sure? Because the biblical teaching takes us in a completely different direction than that conclusion. 
Biblical teaching is that we are surrounded by and driven by what Tim Keller oftentimes referred to as counterfeit gods. Uh, anything besides the one true and living God, anything in the creation besides the creator that we turn to, trust in, lean on, look towards for meaning and purpose, direction and significance in this life. Anything, anything in under the sun, on this earth, besides him. They can be good things. They don't have to be evil things. They can be good things like family, like marriage, like your career, like your reputation, like your theology, your politics, your people, your tribe, your skin color. Any of those things can be an idol. Nothing wrong with any of those things, but any of those things can become an idol that you find and lock in your identity and meaning and purpose into besides him, besides him. Oftentimes we speak of the big three idols. I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Money, sex, and power, right? Those are the big three in our, in our culture today. And those are what you could say are up on the surface. They're the obvious ones that we oftentimes give ourselves to and, and live for, money, sex, and power. But beneath the surface there lurk some other ones that cause us to go after those. The idols of power, the idols of control, the idols of comfort, the idols of approval. Any of those deeper longings and idols will cause us to run after these other ones, power, sex, money. Now, that's almost like a whole nother sermon series, what I just said over the last two minutes. But we've got to press on. And let me just go in this direction at this point. Let's just say for a moment you're buying into what I just said. And now you're saying, well, so what? So that's the way idols work. So what? Why is that a problem? Why is it a problem what I worship? Why is that a big deal? Well, here's why that's a big deal. Because every man, woman, and child is a worshiper. We are all worshipers. We're hardwired as image bearers, those who are made in God's image, to worship something or someone. And we are all, all of us are worshipers, and all of us worshipers are shaped by what we worship. Our lives now and the trajectory on the, in the eternity are shaped by what we worship. We are all worshipers, and our lives are shaped by what we worship. N.T. Wright uh, wrote about this uh, some years ago, and he put it this way. When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. And then he starts about the big three. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat others as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. 
These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. We are all worshipers, and we are all shaped by what we worship. Remember what um, Paige read from Psalm 115 a little while ago? And describing the deadness of false gods? And then we become, they have eyes but cannot see and ears that do not hear and mouths but cannot speak. And we become, those who worship them become like them. That's what we're talking about here. We become less than human to the degree we're giving ourselves towards these false gods. So is it a problem? Yes, it's a problem. And oh, is it worth a pause? Oh, is it worth reflecting and asking the question of the Lord, where have I fallen into this? And the reality, here's what scares me. I know this is true of my own heart. And I think it's true of all of our hearts that we are given towards self-delusion on this point. We want to believe that this isn't true of us, that I'm not an idolater. I am an idolater, and so is everyone in this room. All of us, we, we run around like the crazy people who go playing out in an open field in the middle of a thunderstorm thinking it can't happen to them or going driving off into a blizzard you know, when everyone on the state highway patrolman is saying, don't drive, and we go out, you know, in our gym shorts. Or we go swimming at night, you know, at dusk, when sharks have been said, yeah, they're right out there, 10 feet out in the water. You know, don't, don't swim. And we go, oh, it can't happen to me. Or, you know, we ignore the doctor's orders, you know, about exercise and diet because we say, well, my good genes, and it can't. What? He's like the chorus. It can't happen to me. This is the refrain. What well, can happen to you? We're all idolaters. We all fall into this all the time. You did last week. You will this week. You are this moment. Even as you're saying, I don't believe him. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing. <laughs> Think with me just for a moment. The Apostle John, this... I, I can't get over this every time I think about this. The Apostle John, in, in the letter that we oftentimes refer to as 1 John. Now, he didn't write 1 John at the top, but, you know, it was a letter that he sent, and it was circulated in the, in the late first century. And at the very end of the letter, five chapters, this is the last thing he says. You know what he says? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Up to this point, the Apostle John has not mentioned the word idol or idolatry at all in this entire letter. So what's going on here? Did he just like, oh, dang it, I forgot. I was supposed to talk. I don't have time to write chapter six. I've run out of papyrus. I've run out of ink. The, the, the courier, he's, he's about to go. Little Tony, give me this. No. It captures everything he has just written. Everything he has just written. It sums it up right there. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's connected to everything. This, folks, this, this is the, idolatry is the greatest spiritual danger we face. John Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. Now think about that. Constantly creating, constantly churning out a, a new one or an old one. You know, new and improved one. Idol 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. Uh, that was Calvin. Luther said that 
any violation of any of the Ten Commandments always begins with a violation of the first. To have a God besides the true living God. Any violation of any of the Ten Commandments always begins with a violation of the first one. So that's the Apostle John, John Calvin, Martin Luther, and you know what I'm saying? Can't be me. Isn't that what you're saying? Will we heed this warning? I mean, gracious sakes, the whole history of God's people tells us this. Our own lives, our own personal history tells us this, if we're honest. Will we heed this warning? And if not, why not? Why not? The Lord is our king. Therein we must turn from our idols and to him and... We are all idolaters. Okay, that's point one. That was a cheery point, I know. Point two, here's how they work. Here's how uh, idolatry, here's the dynamics of idolatry. Now we get into the text itself. And this is, again, it's an overview. I'm not gonna try and explain everything that's going on in here. You know, what color was the ephod that Micah created? I don't know. But, you know, we're gonna get into the things that matter here. Uh, And it's it's worth noting that, that Micah, I know there's lots of other characters here. His, his mother, the Levite priest, uh, the Danites, and a host of other characters. You can get lost in all the details, but really it's about Micah, chapter 17 and 18, and, and, and the beginning and the end. So let me get, let's fly over it, just just quick summary of what we see here. So chapter 17, verses 1 to 7, we have this introduction to this guy named Micah. Repeatedly, the, the narrator wants us to understand that he is a man. There you go, verse 1, there was a man of the hill country. And, and that comes up several times in, in, the, in the phrasing, you know, helping us to understand his, his finitude and his uh, fallenness as, as, as well. So we're introduced to this guy, and what does he do? It's a fine family dynamics. He steals silver from his mother, his mother who has pronounced this curse upon anyone who has stolen the silver. He, oh, he gives them the, the silver back. She promises to devote it to the Lord, but then she holds some of it back if you pay attention to the details, and then what she does devote to the Lord ends up being given over to an idol, a little, like a, a, a totem, a physical thing you know, that's going to be uh, uh, serving the purpose of false worship. Micah's all about that. He's great with that. He takes that and puts it in his own personal shrine. He's got a a highway marker, outcome C, you know. He's got his own personal shrine, his own personal idol, and he ordains one of his sons to be his own personal priest. This is so messed up. We don't have the time to touch into the number of commands that this has, has gone astray from and the number of places in Leviticus that this has gone afoul of. But let's just keep going. You get to chapter 17, verses 8 through uh, 13. You have this Levite, who at this point is unnamed. We do learn his name later. We don't know why he's homeless. We don't know why no one has taken him in, but it does beg some questions there. But okay, so Micah, though, meets him and decides, hey, it's time for my shrine to get an upgrade. I need not just any old priest. I need a Levite. And so now he's, he's, okay, now he's put you know, a fresh coat of paint on that highway sign, and he's got a, a new and improved shrine. You skip on over into chapter 18, verses 1 through 31. You have the Danites. What's up with the Danites? Why are they migrating? Well, here's the problem. They were given an allotment of land. You know, the, the 12, the, the 11, not including Levites, they were given their own thing. That's another story. But the 11 were given 
allotments of land. Dan, the tribe of Dan was one of them. They were given this area to conquer, to take for their own, and they didn't do it. So now they're on the move, and they, they want, they're homeless. They want, it's a tribe that's homeless. And they're trying to find a place, and they stop at the, the highway exit. They, some of them go to Bucky's, and other ones go to Micah. And they, they, they check out this, uh, this priest that he has there, and they're exchanging ideas, and they say, oh, you've got this, you, we're, 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 this mission's going to be successful. They, off they go, and they spy out this place. It's like the Shire. I mean, it's just peaceful, and it's wonderful and beautiful, and you can almost hear Howard Shore's soundtrack playing when you hear the way the narrator describes it. And what do they want to do with it? They're like orcs coming in to take the Shire is basically the way the narrator wants us to understand what's going on here. The evil, the depravity of what they're doing. Okay, so then you have, uh, they, 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 cons they consult with one another, they hatch this plan, they, uh, on their way up to, to take the Shire, they take Micah's priest and all of his shrinal goods, okay, and they destroy it. Great! That's your details. That's our overview. It's a picture of moral and societal disintegration. Everything's just flying apart at the seams. It's like a, an infection that is spreading as, as you read it. Beginning with Micah, a household, a tribe, the Danites, excuse me, Micah, the Levite, a Levite, and then a whole tribe, okay? An infection that's spreading, an entanglement that is so sobering to consider. It's, it's like the, the spiritual and moral insanity that we see uh, unfolding here. It's, it's like if you can imagine two trees growing together out of the same root ball in the ground, sucking life off of one another and, you know, twisted up and going up. And it, it, that's what you, you have here, the, the spiritual and moral insanity, this disintegration. Which, perhaps another thing that's worth talking about here is not just the disintegration, but great disappointment is what I, idols always do. They always lead to disintegration, and they always lead therein, coupled with that, disappointment. Uh, what was Micah's great desire? What did he want? What was he angling for in all of this? Well, you don't have to guess. Chapter 17, verse 13. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. It's a crazy assumption on his part, incredibly flawed assumption on his part, and incredibly selfish ambition as well. He wants to, when it comes right down to it, manipulate God through religious activities for his own ends. That's what he wants. That's what he's after. Now, how does that work for him? Not so well. Not so well. This uh, great desire of his leads him into a place of great distress. How well do his false gods, his false worship, how well does that provide for and protect him? How well do those gods do for him? And keep in mind, this is a picture of all of idolatry, whether, whether we're talking about something in that context or our context. It will disintegrate and disappoint 
how well does this go for him? How well does it go for us? You see it captured in chapter 18, verses 23 and 24. As the Danites are taken off with his stuff, and he's protesting, we have pouting Micah now, and they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter with you that you come with such company? And he said, you, listen to what he's saying. In the land of Israel, this, this Israelite says this, you take my gods that I made and the priest, you know, put in parentheses, that I ordained, and you go away and what have I left? I'm not trying to sound cruel, but this is, this is pathetic. You know, where he is at this point, his great desire and where now the distress, all his hopes and plans are gone. And so too is his God. But that's what idols do. All idols, all counterfeit gods, all false hopes, all false trusts and dreams. It's where they always leave us. They promise but can never deliver. Put it this way, a God you can control cannot help you. A God that you can control cannot help you. So here's, here's a picture, do with it what you will. So Lex Luthor, okay, that's right, DC Comics, the bald guy. Lex Luthor has finally gotten Superman. You know, he's finally lured him to this island hideaway somewhere in the, you know, ocean regions of the South Pacific, and he's lured Superman to this place, and he has crippled him with kryptonite. He has no power, Superman that is, has no power, and he's now just there in this island hideaway serving as Lex Luthor's butler. That's it. That's all he's got, okay? But then one day, tragically, NASA picks up, coming from the outer reaches of the space, this meteor coming towards Earth, and oh, lo and behold, it's, it's got making a beeline towards this island hideaway of Lex Luthor. What is Luthor to do? He can do nothing because Superman is under his control. His God cannot help him. A God you can control cannot help you. A God that you can control, a God of our own making cannot help us. So let me just ask this question for all of us. Who or what, if taken from you today, who or what taken from you today would leave you feeling like Micah as though you had nothing left? Who or what, if taken from you today, would leave you feeling like Micah as he's watching the Danites go off to the north with his shrine, with his priest, saying, I have nothing left, his hopes and dreams taken, his God's taken, who or what, if taken from you, would make you cry out, I have nothing. What gods have you made? Those gods can be lost. A God you have made is a God that can be lost. A God that we have made cannot help us. We need a God that we, can, that we cannot make that is unmade, a God that has made us. We need a God that we cannot control, but who controls, oversees all of our lives, a God 
goodness that say uh, the one that, uh, the, that Peter was having a conversation with is recorded for us in John chapter 6. We need this God. Let's just eavesdrop just for a second into this conversation. John chapter 6, starting in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We need that God. The Lord is our King. We need to turn from our idols and to Him. Now, just wrapping up here, let's, let's consider this. Um, to the degree we're able to immerse ourselves into this passage, you will feel a sense of longing. To the degree you can kind of put yourself into what's happening here, you will have a feeling of a sense of, of longing. The irony is thick in this, these chapters. Micah, his very name was one who is like Yahweh. We need the greater Micah. We need the one who is Yahweh. Micah, <laughs> for his own namesake, creates this sanctuary, this safe place, this meeting place, falsely, pseudos, counterfeit. We need the one who actually is the sanctuary, who tabernacled among us that we could meet with God, Jesus. This priest, this hired priest who took the first opportunities he could for the sake of his selfish ambition because he was so upwardly mobile. We need a priest who was so other-centered, centered, so other-centered, so downwardly mobile that he lived and died in our place. We need that priest. That's the one the people then are longing for. That's the one the people now are longing for. And now, is that, a, is that just a pipe dream? Is that just a hope but with no, no resonance, no, no answer, no solution? It's actually, there's, there's hope even in the text. Even in the text, you get a hint of it right at the very end of the chapter where there's mention made of the, of the house, the house of God at Shiloh. Even in those times, God had a place to meet with his people. Twice there's mention of there being no king in Israel. And yet, what does that do? That tells you there will be. There will be. Through the line of David. And through that line of David would come the son of David. Not Solomon, yes, but the greater son. The greater son of David. We've talked about the, the definition of idolatry, the, the, the dynamics of idolatry. What we need is a deliverer from our idolatry. And we have him in Jesus. All that we want in our pursuit of power, sex, and money, we have in Jesus. All that we're chasing after in longings for power and control and comfort and approval, we find in Jesus. Jesus is the object of our longings, the end of all of our searching. 
Blaise Pascal, uh, a brilliant French mathematician from centuries ago, has spent years running from God. Eventually, though, he encounters life, God's life-transforming grace. Now, we don't know a lot as to how this happened, except we do know this. Eight years after Pascal's death, a note was found sewn into his coat, and it records something of his conversion. And this is what Blaise Pascal said. Year of Grace, 1654, Monday, 23 of November, from about half past 10 at night to about half an hour after midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Certitude, heartfelt joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, joy, 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 tears of joy, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him. Now, here's the promise. That joy and peace that was erupting in flames within Blaise Pascal's heart as he was writing those words. That something that was surging within him that you can hear is beyond his words can truly be ours right now. As we see who the king is and as we turn from our lesser gods, our idols, into him. Let's pray. Lord, would you please open up our hearts to the reality of our idolatry? Would you help us to, to face the facts, however frightening that might be? Would you help us to see the ways in which they, they have taken hold, whatever they may be, whatever shape that, that may take, to see the ways in which they've taken hold of our lives and twisted things within us and, and around us? Would you help us to see of our need of your work within us, that this is not something that we can fix ourselves, that we are so much deeply in need of your power? So Jesus, would you show us our need and change our hearts? We pray in your name. Amen.